time given. So um, I want to start off, and I have my I'm on my phone now, but don't think that I'm checking Twitter. I'm just having all my notes here. So please excuse that. So I wanted to start off with uh, one of my pet peeves. And as you may or may not know, I have many, many pet peeves. I have like a whole pet shop worth of peeves. <laughs> and, uh, but one of my pet peeves is, is um, about the idea of faith. And now, um, okay, uh, who here likes, who here watches football? Who here watches television? Everyone? Okay, everyone's, everyone, okay, fine. Um, and everyone, everyone has a, everyone watches about an hour of television, maybe a day? More or less? More? More? By the way, Texans are playing tonight. Oh, that's a good point, but uh, they're fighting for the first pick. <laughs> so everyone watches television, and I, you know, men like football, and women like, uh, I don't know, I don't have a television, so I assume they like, I don't know, Cooking Channel, or History Channel, or CNN, or Fox News, or ESPN, or whatever. HBO. Uh, reality. So what I want to know, um, as a way of introducing my pet peeve, is the average American male who spends maybe five or six hours watching football every Sunday, do they spend that amount of time in their life thinking about the idea of God? And I'm willing to guess or to make the argument that probably not. The average, probably the average American male spends more time on a single Sunday Right? during the football season, watching football, than they do their entire lives thinking about God. And there's a few reasons for this. I understand why it's a pet peeve. Uh, reason number one, I think, is perhaps that, um, well, maybe as a general idea, people aren't used to thinking at all. We're not used to actually um, focusing our, our intellectual capacities to... Uh, to think about a certain topic in a deep way for for an extended period of time, we're used to getting signals, reading books, uh, or watching, being on the receiving end. It's very hard for us to be proactive or programmed to be receptive, passive. So the idea of thinking about a subject and saying, "Okay, fine, I want to spend a half hour thinking: Does God exist, or does God not exist?" Just that very simple, basic, fundamental question. Right? People aren't doing that. That's number one. Number two, I think also. People, um, or this idea, you know, but the majority of the world, I would say, probably does believe in God or some iteration, variation of that concept, right? Probably, you know, we have the Christians and the Muslims and the Jews and I don't know, who knows what the Buddhist believes, but, you know. Everyone, people have their set of beliefs, set of doctrines, set of morals, set of values. Almost the whole world has a certain doctrine, a list of tenets of ideas that they hold to be true or absolutely true or divine, etc., Right? So people do have these beliefs. Now, these beliefs often guide them you know, to you know, how, they do, you know, how they actually live their lives. So if you're a Muslim, well, you keep halal and you, know, you keep uh, the five uh, pillars of Islam and you give 2.5% of your money to charity. They're a little bit more uh, conservative than, than we are, than us Jews. Um, and you pray five times a day. And you keep Ramadan, and you would go to the you, you, you go to the uh, pilgrimage, right? And of course, you're Muslim, and if you're Christian, you believe in Christian. If you're Jewish, likewise. Well, you, you you know you're typically we're all products of our society, right? You know, if you grew up in China, or in a hundred years ago, or eighty years ago in communist uh, Soviet Union, you probably would you you'd probably be a communist. Because your parents are communists, your school's communists, what you're taught is being communist. And if you if you grew up in uh, 
um, in Haiti, you'd probably be shaking your voodoo dolls, right? And where we grow, we you know we grew up as Jews, or or we, we live in a Jewish community, we go to a Jewish congregation. Therefore, we're Jewish. So typically, people don't think about these things because they're part of a society, part of a country. Right? They are indoctrinated to believe in whatever it is that they believe. Okay. So the idea is people don't think about this. That's that that that, that that's that's um that's the I, I believe it's I think it's I it's I haven't proven it to be a fact, but um I think everyone will probably agree that people don't spend so much enough time in it. Would everyone agree to that point? Everyone agrees. Everyone thinks it's reasonable that the vast majority of people don't actually think about this. It's reasonable, yeah. Anyone disagrees with that, Dave? You, you don't think it's reasonable? It's reasonable to say that the vast majority of people don't spend enough time or don't spend significant time in their lives thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are. Okay. Now, okay. So that's that's point number one. We established that everyone pretty much agrees. Now, I would argue, this is where the pet peeve comes in, that there is no item. Right? There's no piece of information that's as important to the way someone lives their lives as to whether, as to this very basic question of whether or not God exists. There is no other entity, no other piece of information, no other item that can dramatically alter and shift a person's focus, a person's values, a person's priorities uh, in their lives right, than this single item. Hence, I would think that there should be no other item that we spend as, uh, there should be nothing that we spend as much time evaluating, thinking about, considering, deliberating upon than this item. Because nothing will alter our path, our trajectory, our uh, values in life more than this item. If God exists, I'm going to live one way. If God does not exist, I'm going to live a different way. Right? If God exists, then by definition, there's purpose. There's meaning. If God does not exist, then by definition, there's no meaning. All we are is just random. We're atoms that are able to experience pleasure and pain. And we try to maximize the pleasure and pain, but there's no ultimate meaning. We're not doing something. We're trying to accomplish There's no purpose. Right? So our life could either be one way, have meaning, or have no meaning. Right? And that one item is that, and, and therefore, and our entire lives and our behavior and the things that we hold to be dear and important, admirable, virtuous, are greatly altered. I'm going to get to your question. Um, just as a result of this one item. And my pet peeve is, is that it's, it's, it's shocking to me that people are able to base their lives on, on, on something that, that just, they just believe what they were told. And they just live based upon the um, the, the values that were given to them, inculcated in them, um, either as a result of something, someone, well, something that they grew up in their family, which is most typical, and they grew up or, or their society, their school, etc. Thank you. Well, that is my point. I think that given our society, our family, group, and culture, that I don't think we are taught to question does God exist or not, and therefore we have to think about it and contemplate it. Whatever was in the family unit or structure, that's what we were taught, that's what we were told, for the most part, and that's what we accepted. And I don't think you question it, I think you question it as adults. Um, If if you just accept it, one way or another, 
I don't think there needs to be a lot of discussion going on or thinking going on. Because yeah, but, but why accepted. would you accept something? The idea I, of accepting, yeah. I, I was going to say, when I was a teenager, that's when I really stopped to think. And that's when you do rebel against your parents. And I very much remember, I mean, maybe no one else does, but I very much remember questioning everything that was told to me. You know, I don't know about anyone else, but I remember having talks with my friends about, is there a God? Where, you know, does God exist? What this? And, you know, I think most teenagers, maybe I'm wrong, but I know with my uh, children, they very much question. And, you know, so I don't, I don't know. You know, I think when you're an adolescent, you tend to push back on what your parents taught you and question who you are. You're really trying to find out who you are. And that is part of growing up. So I, so, you know, I, I agree with you for the most part, but I would say that I, you know, I can remember very much, uh, with in, at least in my case and with my children, very much questioning that. Mm-hmm. But, but even, yes. even, even without thinking of is there a God, is there not a God, we live in a society where you have a moral guide as to what's right and wrong as far as behaviors and everything. Wait, but you're saying this you're saying that it could be morality, absolute morality, irrespective of whether or not there's a God. Is that what you're yeah, arguing? Because I mean you have atheists and agnostics and all that. They're still they're still saying murder is wrong, stealing is wrong. I mean without a God there is knowing right from wrong. You know, whether you believe in it or not is what I'm saying okay, is you're it. not you're not going to be going off and shooting and killing and robbing and everything, you know, unless, you know, you but can why be, not? believe in it's, God. Okay, okay, I will play devil's advocate here, okay? That. Why not? Because you're... Talking assuming, about assuming, remember, but assuming... Remember, assuming... Well. Yeah, okay, I, but I think that if you really think about it mm-hmm. and you recognize that there can only be two options, this is an important thing, there really aren't three options on the table. In reality... Either God exists, either right, the world was designed. We'll get to what God means, but the idea of a designer to the world, right? The idea of the 8.7 million creatures having a designer, and the fact that we have an atmosphere and we have liquid water and we have a sun that's perfectly distant away from our Earth, right? The idea of the design that our planet. And our universe has to ensure that life is able to exist, right? Either that is as a result of a cause, a designer, we call it God, or it's random. There's no cause. And we just exist and have consciousness, pure magic. Right? And then if so, it's very hard to logically explain the idea of morality if all we are are a random collection of atoms. That's all we are. It's like, it's, it's to our, it's, the argument of morality without God is a very hard one to intellectually make. It's very, it's, very, it's very uncomfortable to talk about it, by the way. It's a very uncomfortable discussion. You tell an atheist who to be a very, very moral person that his morality doesn't make any sense. You know? uh, and it's, that's why I'm saying it's a very sensitive discussion. But from a purely intellectual statement, uh, uh, perspective, if God does not exist, we are nothing more than croutons in a soup bowl. Ooh, I like that. That's all we are. Right and and it, it, it's immaterial as to whether or not one 
Groupon and uh, not Groupon. Crouton. I said I said Groupon and Crouton <laughs> the same thing. Whether or not one Crouton encroaches on the the immaterial doesn't matter. It's all it is. It's a random collection of atoms. That's what it is. Yeah. I, uh, we had the other rabbi did I think two or three weeks at least for those of us that were here a series on proving God's existence. Do y'all recall that? Yes, I will be honest with you. I thought that was the weakest one. And I'll tell you why. Okay, which, which one? The one that, that morality? No, well, that, God he was, that God exists. He tried. He was proving, proving God existence proving. through the Torah, through this. And he, okay, you no, said it was the, the proofs were weak, were weak? No, no, I'm not saying the proofs were weak. I thought it was the weakest uh, argument? Te- yeah, argument and teaching. Because guess what? He admitted at the end of all this that there's a 3% or 2% even that you cannot prove. That it is it rests on faith. On what you're, or what we want to discuss today. Mm-hmm. I mean, you cannot prove God's 100%. existence a hundred percent. He said that to us, and so I'm like, well, why did we go through this? Because the truth is, it really rests on faith. It rests on if you believe, you believe. If you don't, you don't. Uh, okay, so. But I believe that you had said that you can't. So you're saying that we have to just take the intellectual aspect out of it. No, I don't say take it out of it. You're saying because if it's ultimately a matter of faith, Father, I'm so delighted to have you having this conversation. This is awesome. Right? Is is everyone comfortable, by the way? Yeah, everyone's comfortable or anyone's uncomfortable? Good. Okay. Okay. Huh? Yeah, I love you guys. I'd say, you know, not to compare (laughs) you with any other group, but you guys are the best. My point is like this. Okay, I'll only first address what Lily brought up. Okay. Um, and that is that you're trying to tell, uh, what I think you're saying is that, hey, if it's ultimately a matter of faith, then who needs to address it from an intellectual perspective at all? No, I, I believe to address it, to go ahead and know what kind of proofs there are. But in the final analysis, you're going to have to take the leap. You're right. going to have to take the leap. He said in here, God does not want us to come in here and be on high here because then we won't have that faith. We we will believe. We will know. We will know. So we can oh, go through all this intellect. Okay, uh, okay, 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 okay. But let me ask you a question. But let me ask you a question. Let me ask you. Let, 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 let's turn this on its head. Okay. Okay. As uh, Talmuders are wont to do. Okay. Let's assume that there's a leap of faith to believe in God. I would argue that there is a much, 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 much greater leap to not believe in God. It means you need to require a much greater leap of faith, right? It means faith, we're saying, is the point from where the intellect ends and that abyss before that actual, um, uh, that actual um, uh, conclusion, correct? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's what you can prove from what the evidence shows, and, you know, and then, well, then there's a jump and then there's the conclusion, correct? That's the leap of faith. You cannot prove it a hundred thousand percent, so you have to. There has to be an element of faith. But I would argue is that there's a much greater leap of faith to argue the opposite. Maybe, maybe so. Maybe you're right. I I mean, that that could very well be. Maybe that could very. But 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 if if we could, but then we could. Then even though we cannot prove with absolute. Uh, conclusiveness that God exists, but we can prove perhaps that it's much, 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 much more likely, more reasonable, more the probability of God existing is actually much greater than the probability of God not existing. Yeah. By millions of times. I I probably 
believe you, even without going through an intellectual exercise. But I do think that there are people that just cannot connect the dots to God's existence, to what happens to them. They're going through a world and having them be receivers, be passive, and they aren't, like you say, taking the time to think things through and see what they need to see. You have to open your eyes up. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to open your eyes to God being around you. Yeah, you're receptive to that idea. That's right. I agree 100%. Yes. But I also believe, now I could be off base, but I often, and I brought this up before, that people like Yaakov Wolby, Ariel Wolby, Gadon Moskowitz, a lot of our learned, they don't only believe there's a God, they know there's a God. Mm-hmm. I, uh, that, that's what I yeah, think. but uh, but Lily 100 correct that, right that there is always there is always a window. Mm-hmm. There's always a window. I don't want. I'm, not, I'm trying to get to actually what does faith actually mean. This is more of the introduction as a pet peeve. Do you know this? But God? what you know? This Absolutely, God. yes, I do. That's a lot. But believe there's a God. Okay, and 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 um, and I, I agree to that point. But the reality is that unless you have prophecy. Unless you have real prophecy, mm-hmm. right? By definition, this means absolute clarity, mm-hmm. right? Incontrovertible clarity, mm-hmm. right? You cannot possibly know with absolute certainty. Mm-hmm. It could seem much, much more likely, mm-hmm. right? incredibly so, mm-hmm. right? But you can't actually know. But that, be, that being said, mm-hmm. that does not mean that we're absolved from intellectual pursuit, pursuing this in an intellectual yeah, manner. So, as it relates to that, Point where you kind of started saying that we don't think about uh, the whole gamut of God, what it means. Uh, we, we don't spend enough time. And uh, Lily said in her teens, she was thinking about that. Or yeah. that was, but I could tell you, you as a know. teenager and probably into my 30s at least, you know, that was, if, if was there the was a little glimmer of light, oh, wow. it, it just wasn't there. And now I'm relating it to my friends, and granted, we were uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> certainly not of a, uh, a faith generation, if you will, and I'm not saying I was a bad boy, uh, but I certainly wasn't a good boy. At, well, but, you know, I followed some very, uh, you know, Interesting roads, I'll say. Or oh, did some oh, interesting. But my point is, it never dawned on me. Hell, right? I, I knew what was right or wrong. As Bill had brought up, Arbor Round was there. We knew laws are in place and so forth. But it really, I didn't start thinking about God, maybe because until I got closer to the end game, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden I started mm-hmm. to put things in perspective yeah. and look back on things. And I'm wondering if there go back to your original statement, if you were to draw timelines, yes. age timelines, I wonder where that starts to turn. And I'll bet it's different for men and women. And that I'll bet it's different thing. for Thank men you. and women, but Thank it you. also yeah. depends on your upbringing. Oh, very yes. much so. Oh, Being yes. the only Jews in the county, but the surrounded by... Your God? Your, your partly, yes. Okay. Partly, okay. so... There were no discussions. I had zero discussions with my Baptist friends because they were always wanting to convert. So religion was off the table as far as I'm concerned. In my home, my parents didn't believe in God. We were Jewish and raised Jewish, 
but not the God or spirituality aspect. There was no discussion in... in okay, so... There was no discussion so in the house. Did you, did you not no question right there? Because my... But I my, couldn't go further. There was, I mean, my there, Jewish grandfather was, said, I am certain there is no God. I wanted the Holocaust. And I that wondered, just blew my mind. I thought I that was the stupidest remark I'd ever heard. And like Barry, then it, it, it stay, I stayed in that state. Alan and I built our own religious world. Um, and it wasn't until after we were married and, and started raising our family. We're, we are way more religious than certainly my parents I, and, I, and my brothers. But religion, religion but out so of it, religion out of it. Every every person, every kid, especially you know, having God? to say the Lord's Prayer no, here when I was a little kid, you said the Lord's Prayer, you know, forced. And so you know, I mean, I may have been different because of my being, because I've always been a questioner and a seeker bottom line and so you know to me when when my grandfather said there is no god to me i'm like what everyone else seems to think there is we're seeing the lord you know so to me all of that fed into a complete questioning and especially as a teenager but you have to be raised where questioning is allowed and permitted that's right you do but you know what barry and i's generation which is like the 60s okay we grew up in the and I, most of my, 95% of my friends were Jewish. Yeah. We never talked about God. Yeah. We just went, you know, we caught, yeah. cared about what was relevant. We cared about partying, whatever that, whatever was, that was. And significant gamut of doing things. Right. But we never <laughs> talked about, we didn't spend two minutes thinking about that. Right. No, you're wrong. But you're wait lucky if you but did. wait a minute. You know, the 60s, and I don't get it either because y'all are about the same age. I don't know about y'all. But these three kind of go, to, and um, I don't get it. That was a time of questioning women's rights, well, the bra burning, the the drugs, the free love, the yeah, this and whatever. But, but, you know, and you we would didn't get question it. Question we did it. You know. <laughs> well, I'm we're supposed to. God had nothing. God had nothing to do with that. We just Yeah, we just we didn't spend time thinking about it. We just did it. <laughs> But okay. I will say, with being being Did raised you? with no, I know, no, not being allowed. And it wasn't until I became an adult and I had to figure that out. Um, and interesting, like my brother, not religious, but we both feel that our parents did us a disservice in not in in their not being allowed any discussion. Mm-hmm. And therefore, a lack of a spirituality or a spiritual connection. And we both feel that emptiness, that hole, that hollow something that we are as mature adults you know, are now trying to not fill, but find, find discover. Our just to add what Anne yeah. is saying, and I think we all said this, and uh, I mean, I felt it to a major degree when your brother would talk about his relationship with his grandfather and walks and dis- mm-hmm. intellectual discussions. Mm-hmm. I mean, my background was so void of that, I almost mm-hmm. felt jealous when he was talking about it because I really wish I would have had not necessarily only to discuss God uh, for God's sake, but to get all the other intricate understanding of the Torah and what it could bring to your life and blah, blah, blah. I mean, we just didn't have any of that kind of experience at all. Yeah. I mean, totally. it, right. 
know, in my case, I only had my grandmother uh, uh, and uh, my parents, and you know, they were they came over from Germany, and we just were Jewish, and we didn't, you know, we went to synagogue, but we didn't really discuss mm -hmm. anything about it. It was just, yeah. you know, I think that your parents' generation. But I also think that my my pet peeve really it's it's irrespective of someone's religion. I think even yeah. someone living in Saudi Arabia, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and it's it, it's with regards to God, but it's also with regards to religion. You know, I've I've said this and gotten in trouble, but I say it that you know we have a billion Christians in the world roughly, and a billion Muslims in the world. And the basic premise of each religion is mutually exclusive, right? It's not possible for them both to be right, correct? So therefore, you have at least a billion people in the world that are living their lives, uh, you know, perhaps even very um, uh, diligently, or I don't know word, but um, religiously, I'm thinking of the right word, but... Uh, People have a great dedication, a great affinity, and spend a lot, you know, fervent, fervent, fervor. But people are spending, and they're wrong. At least a billion of them. We just we just demonstrated because they cannot both be right. And what is the greatest factor to determine someone's religion? Well, you just take a look at the demographics. You know, if you were born somewhere in Arabia, you know, likely, or in Turkey, you're going to be a Muslim, right? or in North Africa. And if you're born somewhere in Europe, um, it just depends where in Europe, but you're born in Italy or in South America, in Brazil and Argentina, you're going to be a Christian. So it's it's to me it's silly that the most important indicator of someone's life is going to be just merely uh, determined by where they grew up. And the likelihood of being wrong is 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 so is you know so readily apparent because they cannot both be right. There's a billion people in them that are wrong and living their lives the wrong way. At least, and then you have the Hindus and the and the you know the, the, and the Jews, and we're Jewish. And is it is it wrong? Is it wrong to add? Yes, I understand. But what that means? Yeah, remember, there's always two steps. You believe in God, and what does God mean? Whatever. But then, okay, what does that mean for for me? What's the practice? So I would argue that the Jewish God and the Muslim God is in fact the same thing. If you take a look at the at the, at, at the theology right, that describes how the Jews, and I hope, hope, hope to get this today also, how the Jews define God and how the Muslims define God, it's identical. But what to do about it, the application of that principle, well, we have the Torah and they have the Quran, very, very different. Do you know, Rabbi, it's up, <clears throat> there's a big distinction because most of the people that become Balchuva and learn it, <clears throat> something has made them do that. <clears throat> What's some impetus? We don't, we don't just, well, you know, we just don't um, not be not observed and all of a sudden, here we go. Something has happened in our lives. To, whereas the Muslims are indoctrinated at birth to be the way they are. Because of the free will that us Jews have, a lot of us don't even, don't even, Think about the existence of God, or think about. And that. this is what I'm lamenting. You're right. You're exactly. 100% right. There. Exactly. It's such a crucial thing. It's so crucial, so vital, so pivotal, so integral to the way we're going to live our lives, 
and it's so neglected as, as you know, as a matter of, of yeah. do we not take it seriously? It's a given. We we're born Jews. We're raising our children in Jewish households. What That's kind it? of assimilation, though? Uh, yeah, you take a look at the statistics. Uh, you know, but and, and remember, my 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 point is not limited to the Jewish community. It's it's humanity. Humanity. There's eight billion of us. Whatever. Uh, and this is the most important question. I don't think there's any other question. Android versus iOS, maybe, but but what? How much? How long do people spend Android versus iOS before they buy a smartphone? And that's 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 silliness. It's totally immaterial. But the idea of does God exist or not exist is neglected, and that's the most important question of them all. So correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. Had your grandfather not taken that turn to become religious. He was raised secular, correct? correct? Had he not taken that turn to become religious and filth his life with God, Torah, Judaism, to influence then the next generation, to influence you and your brothers and your siblings, yeah, and how different would your life? I, you might be sitting at the table like us. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, what I want to tell you is that right? that the truth yeah. is, and I'm going to say something that everyone will disagree with me. So I just made that alert already. Mm-hmm. Unpopular opinion alert, I call it. The truth is, I would argue that someone who grew up in a society, in a family, that embraced religion, organized religion, um, and observed it to its entirety, has a harder time making the principles and the ideals and the beliefs real and integrating them into their heart. Harder time than someone who did not or did not grow up with any any, any background at all. You have a harder time growing than me. Yeah, it means if if you always observe Shabbat and. Always, and it was never was a question. And you always wore tefillin, right? How much harder is it to think about, oh my gosh, I'm doing a mitzvah now. This is what the Almighty commanded me to do. This is amazing. This is what the Torah, the Almighty at Mount Sinai instructed Moses to wear these boxes on my on my head, on my and my arm. It becomes monotonous. It becomes something that you do. It's onerous. It's monotonous. It's repetitive. It's very hard to infuse meaning into something that you're used to. And, and I would argue that it doesn't matter. It's not an idea of practice. It's an idea of vitality. It's a discussion. Is it, how alive am I when I do a mitzvah? Well, if I'm doing it just again and again, there, you run the risk. I know this. And even in the observant or quote-unquote orthodox world, the idea of burnout is rampant. Because you have kids that don't, don't necessarily have, they, they know what to do, but they don't have any life to it. Right? The parents didn't say, hey, this is something so beautiful and give them the background and explain them why they're doing what they're doing. And therefore, they are, I would maybe argue, this is the unpopular opinion, that they have a harder time um, uh, rethinking the principle that they believe in. No, I, I agree. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah that's not, that's not yeah. So yes, so yes, there is an advantage that someone has of having a strong Jewish background, for sure. And it's often influenced by circumstances beyond their uh, control. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't absolve them 
from asking these important questions. Jim would come and says, oh, I believe in God. Yeah, do you believe in God? Yes. If I ask people, I'll have a room. I, I, I've, I've done this exercise a few times. I'm not going to do it tonight. But I've said, okay, you believe in God? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone believes in God. And then I say, okay, why do, why do you believe in God? Why do you want to Huh? Why didn't you hear what you said? And then the next question is, why? Most people, even those that are quote-unquote orthodox and observant and never transgressed a single sin in their life uh, on purpose, right? Most of them will say, well, that's what my family told me. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, they're, on a certain degree, you share a common denominator with the average Muslim who lives in Yemen. Right? First, because you're doing something. You happen to be right. You happen to have won the lottery. Right? You happen to be doing what's right because you, because you grew up in a Jewish family. But on a certain degree, right, you, you didn't come to it as a result of your own intellectual uh, you know, deliberation. So to a certain degree, well, had you been born in a different family, you would be doing that without, without thinking twice about it. And I, and I, and I, I want to underscore this. I want to transition into the uh, core discussion about faith, that when it comes to faith, and, and David hinted to this, that um, there's always going to be two items. And Maimonides um, uses both of them, which is a little bit of a uh, secret. People don't, most people don't know that. But he opened up the beginnings of Maimonides. Maimonides wrote three major works, right? What are the three major works? Pirish Mishnais, which is the commentary on the Mishnah, 13 principles. Well, which contains 13 principles of faith in the, in the introduction to the last chapter of Sanhedrin. Very good. But it's all 63 books of the Mishnah commentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has the Yad Chazaka with Mishnah Torah, which is all of Jewish law and philosophy and everything, mm-hmm. organized in the books. And the last of the three is Guide to the Perplexed. Mm-hmm. Right? Everyone's heard of that term. Mm-hmm one of the great uh, philosophic words of the past thousand years. Now, if you open up the Rambam, Maimonides, at Yad HaZakan, his, in his uh, major 14-volume work of all Judaism, he starts off by saying, he starts off from the most important item in Judaism, and that is believing God. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't use the word faith, he doesn't use the word belief, he uses the word knowledge. You have to know it. Right? And uh, many, many people have observed that from that usage of the word knowledge is that my, what Maimonides is really telling us um, that what Judaism demands from us with regards to faith is not merely relying on what we grew up with and what society told us to be true. You can be Jewish and you can be observant and you can be, believe in God. But why do you believe in God? Do you believe in God just because of circumstances surrounding you? Well, then you have faith. You do have faith. But something is lacking because knowledge can only mean when someone goes through the steps intellectually and, 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 and reaches that conclusion as a result of their intellectual uh, uh, pursuit of it. And therefore those people say that Maimonides seems to say that it's not sufficient to just rely on what you believe in. It means faith is maybe the wrong term to use for what we're talking about. It may be knowledge. But, what I'll, I'll tell you, I'll argue you guys with some, uh, some firepower. If you take a look at Maimonides, and I'll tell you where it is. It's in uh, book number three, chapter uh, 51 of Guide to the Perplexed. And there he says that there's a great value to faith. He, the way he describes it is that faith, what someone received from their parents, what you got from your parents that has value, even if you did nothing to actually accomplish it. 
So it's a misnomer, it's incorrect to say that Maimonides of the belief that faith has no value. It might, I mean, he certainly does accord significant value to having faith alone. And someone can have any proofs to it, and someone cannot ha- understand intellectual basis for it, and someone might not be able to argue with someone who disagrees with that point, and he won't know to answer the important questions uh, that someone that may be posed to him uh, if they were to engage in a debate on this subject. But they still have faith. I don't know why, but I feel like because my parents told me that's what it, that has value. It has value, and it's not something to be embarrassed of, and it's something very, very uh, precious. Still, still, there is a, um, a higher level that we call knowledge. So, um, you know, I, I think when I, I teach young students, young uh, Jewish students, um, every week I have classes, I meet them, and you know, they all believe in God. How many of them have actually gone through that three-part series and finding evidence and what are the seven proofs and what the from Talmudic sources and addressing all the aspects and wait, what, how does God exist and how do we exist and the, the, the coexistence of God and man don't seem to have, doesn't seem to make any sense, right? It's, uh, there's major philosophical issues to grapple with. Still, someone has faith. Someone says they believe. They don't know why they believe, but they believe it has value. But uh, the, uh, hopefully, ultimately, one should always not uh, just merely rely on that, but they should engage in some sort of intellectual pursuit to come to that uh, realization uh, as a result of their own uh, capabilities, intellectual uh, achievements. Yeah, the onus is on us to go through this and not to just solely rely on Correct. what we were feeling. Right, but remember, not to denigrate the fact that, sure. or people that have faith alone. Right. You know, there's a, uh, like, we, uh, the shtetl, right? Mm-hmm. We always think of the, the, the grandmothers in the shtetl. And they were real simple people. You know, uh, Jews over the centuries were always, you know, literate. And the intellectuals, they were always, the Jews were always the intellectuals. And huh? Kind. Yes, but uh, but um, but but you know, even today, who who are the intell- who, who 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 controls finance? <laughs> Jews, right? Jews are driven. Jews are capable. Jews are able. And um, I heard uh, this uh, Jewish uh, sociologist of sorts uh, make the argument that the Jews of the shtetl of two hundred years ago, you know, who lived in the rural parts of Poland and Russia were the least educated of all the Jews in history, right? But but there's a uh, the image that I always received of the person in the shtetl was someone who was simple, someone who wasn't so. They may have been illiterate, you know, some some more than others. Uh, obviously, we know that the Jew, you know Jews have to teach their children how to read and how to learn Torah. Um, but there was a lot. There was a very large contingency of Jews that were illiterate, but they were simple and they believed and they had faith and they didn't know why they had faith. And that's something. While we should not just you know rely on that alone, it's something that's not uh, you nothing to sneeze on. That you know, and if only Jew, the, the Jew, American Jewry today would have that simple faith that uh, our great grandparents had in the shtetl in Europe uh, two hundred years ago. What happens to those people who don't have faith in God? What if you don't believe in God? The question? Yes. You're an atheist. 
or an agnostic. No, no, not me. Sorry. Not you. I'm saying you. I'm saying that person. Yeah, I forget. that person. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, <laughs> what is the lot of the atheist? Is that the question? No, what happens to those people? You want to know what, like, do they get punished? <laughs> no, the in question? their lives. What happens if they don't So I, I think that the term atheist is not such an accurate term because you can't really have proof, right? Exactly. You can't prove something doesn't exist. You can't prove it, right? You can't. That, that's why I said when my grandma right, right. said that, it's, I said, okay, if you say you're agnostic, Right, it's, it's an intellectual say, impossibility. Exactly. Is their lives ruined or destroyed or uh, do they punished yeah, so, or not? So, um, so someone who doesn't... So, so the first point is that people aren't really atheists. They just don't believe in it, uh, but it doesn't mean that they know that it doesn't exist. Right. No one has like, proven... Right? Or they don't believe in it. They say, if you ask me, put it around my head, I say no. Can they have meaning in their lives? I believe that they can. Because if God, uh, God still exists, and therefore humans still have the capacity to have, have, have morality. They could have, I believe they could have meaning in life. And they could have a family and could live wonderful lives. Um, can they, um, are they limited in, in the pleasure they can have in life? Yes. I would argue that um, there are some pleasures in life that can only be attained um, if someone has faith. And therefore, this person, um, while I do believe that they can have meaning, and they can have a family, and they can have uh, be active members of the community, and uh, give charity, and be honest, I don't think that someone who doesn't believe in God is incapable of having a productive, um, you know, to, to your person. I don't, I don't think it's uh, uh, an impossibility. That being said, they will, uh, they will uh, be, uh, there will be limits onto how much pleasure they can have in life. And as Jews, they're not doing their responsibility as Jews. They're neglecting. Um, She's trying to find out if it's going to be a special punishment. Was that the question? Kind of. <laughs> but, well, it's, any more than someone who neglects. Remember, whenever, this is an important point. Oh, this is this is why I came here. Ready? <laughs> punishment, reward, and punishment. We think of it. What do we think of it? As as a uh, a melting pot. I remember I had there was a, when I was in yeshiva in Israel. So there was this bakery next to the yeshiva, the biggest yeshiva in the world, near the great Mir yeshiva. Uh, it was established almost two hundred years ago. The year 1815, a small town in Poland, it became this massive yeshiva in uh, the late part of the 19th century. In the 20th century, it was the only yeshiva to not be interrupted at all by the Holocaust. The entire yeshiva, a group, hundreds of students, traveled uh, east, and they had a yeshiva in Shanghai for five years. After the war, uh, the yeshiva moved to New York and to Israel, where it was, it was reestablished. So now there's a few mere yeshivas. Um, so I was in the yeshiva in Israel. I was in Israel. I was there for three and a half years. So there's a bakery because there's thousands and thousands of yeshiva students in a very close context. So there's lots of food establishment. I call it the food capital of the world. It's just so much food, so much kosher food, right where, you know, like eight barbers within, you know, 
7,000 men, they all need haircuts like once every month and a half, right? There's enough business for, anyhow. So there's this bakery. And this bakery is like a Middle Eastern kind of bakery. And they have this, um, this oven. Very, like, very big. Um, but the door is like this big. And they put in like the, these, these Middle Eastern flatbreads and have this, this, this enormous like fire machine sending in. So I always said, I always told the, the guys in Yeshiva, see, you know, when you, when you die, you go to hell, they put you into one of those, and, like, and they close the door, and like, you're all claustrophobic, and the fire, that's what I said. But that's actually not true. It's actually not true. That's what we think uh, punishment really is. Punishment is much worse. And that is the realization, the realization of missed opportunities. There could be nothing... It's a lot more painful, a lot more painful to... Um, I had this experience recently. Imagine you had like the, like the win lottery ticket and you didn't actually check the lottery. You just threw it out and then somehow you got knowledge of the fact that you had it. It was in your hands and you dropped it and you lost it and you were just negligent. That's a much deeper pain than any spanking someone can get. So, yeah, uh, we're told that that we're, we're punished. They're just gonna put you in a fire and be so and just you know, f- you know, flay your skin and like it's much worse than that. It's you realize what you could have had, what you could have achieved. You realize how you sold, uh, you traded eternity for passing pleasure. You traded an eternal pleasure for something that just comes and goes. You took a hundred candy bars instead of having lasting pleasure forever. You know, and 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 having a connection with the Almighty forever. And that realization of missed opportunity is much, much deeper. So when and we look at pleasure, and there's another this is somewhat connected to the previous point. Pleasure of reward and the pain of punishment. They're actually more, they're not external. It means in the way we have reward and punishment, right? How does reward and punishment work? Okay. So the kid, uh, it's toilet training to your kid. So you say, you get a lollipop if you make him the toilet, mm-hmm. right? Or you get an A, I'll buy you a car. Or uh, you misbehave, bam, right? Right? It's you do this, you do X, you get Y. If the X is good, well, then you get something good. You get either a smile, I'm so proud of you, way to grow, something which is external to thing that granted you that uh, reward or, or punishment. You do something bad, you get punished. Right? What does it mean? Uh, you, uh, you drive above the speed limit, you get caught, you get a ticket. Right? You commit a crime, you go to prison. Right? There's the action. And then the you know you discover something great you get the Nobel Prize right any anything as any minor or major reward or punishment that we could perceive is all uh, two items the thing that you did and the result that you got in Judaism when we talk about reward and punishment it's not uh, it's not external to the item or to the action right when you do a mitzvah. What you're doing is you're creating a spiritual entity that, that, that lives forever and that you could enjoy forever. Right? The reward is intrinsic in the mitzvah, in the action. 
the action creates a spiritual entity that can nourish your soul for eternity. As opposed to, a, uh, conversely, a misdeed creates a spiritual entity, right, that, uh, ha- however you want to look at it, as being either a hole in, in, in your soul, right, or lack, a, a tarnishing of your soul, that's going to hamper your ability to have eternity, or something which, um, a, you know, which reduces the, um, um, or the, the impact of your accomplishments, we view reward and punishment as being uh, intrinsic to the activity. Does that make any sense? It does, right? So that's why, when you ask reward and punishment, it's not, it's not, puni- not punishment per se. I think, it's, I think those are the words that we use, but they're not really, they don't do justice to the idea. And like I said, it's not, it's not like we put the guy in the furnace, it's much worse. Right? The experience... And it's not, and it's hard for us to wrap our heads around this. Because You're already it's a, suffering on dessert. Yeah, it's miserable. <laughs> Why? Yeah, I was thinking in heaven we would enjoy. Yeah, and 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 the Almighty, the Almighty is the is 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 the fairest is is, and I didn't mean to bring the whole discussion about reward and punishment, <laughs> but I wanted to just share the kernel of the idea. And God. yeah, but you know, if you think if you think that. Uh, it's just about okay. I don't know, I'll get tons of diamonds or riches or wealth or pleasure, or physical pleasure. It's much more than that. So we have to do hard labor in heaven. Not hard labor. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Hard labor. Yeah, so that, and remember, it's um, the idea of reward and punishment. You know, after you die, you get rewarded or you get punishment. That idea is a crucial idea in the Torah. How do you know it's crucial? Because the aforementioned Maimonides' 13 principles of faith, right? One of the 13 principles, uh, uh, actually a whole section of the 13 principles, the last four, I think, deal with reward and punishment in various um, forms of that idea. So it's a crucial idea. But the Torah doesn't say, hey, do a mitzvah, Die, pleasure doesn't say that anywhere in the Torah. Or do a misdeed, an avera, a sin, die, pain doesn't say it anywhere in the Torah. Uh, and um, the question that you have to ask is, hey, wait a minute, the Torah makes lots of predictions. The Torah addresses so many aspects of, of our um, future, what's going to happen to us. You'll come back to Israel and reestablish a state after being spread around the nation. Around the nations, right? The Torah says, hey, Jewish people, you've been living in Israel, you're going to be spread around the whole world, and you're going to come back to Israel and reinstitute the, 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 uh, all the Jews coming back to Israel, right? And people read that 200 years ago, really? There's not a single Jew in Israel. There's like 20, 22 Jews in the entire Israel. It's barren. Nothing going on there. And two, fast forward 200 years later, and yeah, there's 6 million Jews in Israel. Remember, the Torah predicted it. The Torah doesn't tell us die, and what's going to happen to you. Um, because it's something that we cannot wrap our heads around. The idea of reward and punishment from the Torah's perspective is something that we cannot, there's no reward and punishment that we could give that is intrinsic to the action. So the Torah can't describe to us things that are beyond our capacity to understand. 
So try explaining color to a blind person. Yeah. It's not possible. But so how is it that Maimonides had such definitive statements as it relates to that? So... How did he, how did he construct it from... Okay, so that's a good question, a very good question. And the answer is that he actually did not have definitive statements. And if you take a look at definitive statements, if you take a look at the 13 principles of faith, I'm saying that for my own good, by the way. <laughs> you take a look at the 13 principles of faith, and there is an amazing, amazing piece of Maimonides. It's very, very long. Very long. And he's usually very brief in his commentary of the Mishnah. But in this particular piece of, of, of commentary where he gives the 13 principles, he starts off, he gives an introduction. It's uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of words. And he says, hey, this principle of getting reward and punishment is an idea widely accepted um, in every, all of Jewish philosophy. Yet, yet, there's so many different uh, explanations as to what happens. And he brings down five separate theories, not theories, or uh, positions on this one matter. And, and, and he himself says, we don't know because it was never described to us what's actually going to happen. And he gives my example. By the way, you think my example was mine. It wasn't. He says, try to explain to a blind person what color is. You can't do it. You can't explain what reward is to a man, mortal man. He gives two other examples. So rabbi, try to explain sounds to a deaf person and try to explain. The faith is, a deaf, is, by its nature, he is making a statement. Didn't he? You need to know there's a God. Isn't that the first principle of faith? Correct. So he is making a statement. Correct. Well, he is, but not with regards to word and punishment. No, I'm not kidding. And also, and that's not, that's, not, that's not the only time where he says that. That's the theme of Maimonides with regards to word and punishment. And he talks about Mashiach, for example. And uh, he brings the Talmud. It's interesting that the idea of the Jewish day of Mashiach is uh, the very last thing that Maimonides discusses in his 14 books. The first thing is that... And what's the second to last thing? I've mentioned this before, so Dave, you've heard this. Let's see if you remember. What's the second to last thing? What's the second to last thing? The last two chapters in all of Maimonides deals with Mashiach, the Messiah. What are, the, what are the third to last and fourth to last, the two preceding chapters? They talk about the laws of Gentiles. What? The laws of Gentiles. He, you know? He talks about the laws. Yeah, it means what? Like the Noahide laws. Yeah. Law, the universal laws that everyone needs to observe, even Gentiles. And what he's saying is, well, this is what I, way I, I interpret what my, my mind is saying. He's saying is, hey, you're Jewish. I gave you a book. This is a book of Judaism. Everything you need to know. It's more important for you to know what the Gentile needs to do than it is to know what Mashiach is. It's so not important. It's still part of Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish life and Jewish thought and Jewish uh, wisdom, so you have to know about it, but it's the least important thing. But there he says, he says, nobody is going to know what it is, how it is, until it is. Because this is, uh, this is, once again, an idea of reward and punishment. We don't have precise information. Mashiach, about Mashiach. Correct. Yeah. I'm always wondering about, I mean, you know, We don't believe don't, Mashiach has, has come. Obviously, we don't believe Christ is Mashiach at all. We don't. But, um, you know, the whole idea of Mashiach, when is he coming? 
well, you know, this type of thing. I mean, we, when, we, <laughs> have, we have 233 years left <laughs> in this world. That's what people believe. This oh, world yeah, is 6,000 yeah, years so old. And we, we have, have 230. I didn't know we were down to 230. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> we better get the limit. No, it's, yeah. even, it's even no. closer than that. I, I, Rabbi, am I not? Is that? Is that? There's six millennia. It'll be over okay. the year 6,000. It's supposed to, the world's supposed to end. Who says okay. that? Okay. Where, where is that? Where, where is yes. This? In the Talmud, it says like this. Okay. Uh-oh. <laughs> which is Aramaic for six thousand years is the world. That's it. Two thousand years. Tohu. Tohu is probably best uh, translated as chaos. Okay. Two thousand years. Torah. (laughs) Okay. And two thousand years. Mashiach. Two thousand years. Mashiach. Yes. What? Wait a minute. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. This is what it says. That that's the source. Now, what that means? Um, yes. Yeah, because I don't numbers don't confuse you. Well. <laughs> well. Okay. So so no, we're in the Shiach time. So like this, like this. What is tohu? What does chaos mean? What does chaos mean? Chaos of when the world was created yeah. and all, all of that being put well, together. Well, define chaos. Give the quickest definition for chaos. Confusion. A mess. Right? Okay, so then what happens at the end of the mess? There's order. There's order. There's clarity. Now, at the 2,000-year point in the, you know, the Jewish calendar, we have a fellow by the name of Abraham. Abraham shows up almost exactly the year 2000. Almost exactly. Okay. Um, the precise dates are 1948. So that's almost 2000, Nine. but 1948 of, uh, in the Jewish calendar. Okay. But my, uh, Abraham, <laughs> Abraham didn't quite reach his peak until he was 40. And then he started, uh, he started spreading the idea of God to the world. So almost exactly to the year of, uh, of 2000, do we have... Order out of chaos means the idea of God. People didn't believe in God. Yeah. God was a foreign word till Abraham shows up. Right? Comes along Abraham. Right? Okay. Now, fast forward 2,000 years after that. Uh-huh. What happens to those years after that? You have the Mishnah being You have the temples being destroyed. You have Torah, which means the, 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 the idea of Abraham. Now we believe in God. So that's right. the there's, there's, no, so the first 2,000 is the idea of God. The first 2,000 is clarifying chaos, chaos but to, to what? Right, what's, what's the antidote of chaos? Right? Clarity. Okay. It comes along Abraham, teaches the idea of God. Okay. Next 2,000 years, Torah. Right? What comes at the end of that? The idea of, 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 of the Torah being spread out to the world with the Mishnah, the Mishnah being written. The Jews are no longer in Israel. They're no longer, right? The idea of Torah is being the portable homeland of the Jewish people. Okay. Right? And then the idea of Mashiach is the last 2,000 years. And at the end would be, whatever Mashiach means, mm-hmm. would be complete at the end of... of uh, wow. Now, so these... We are in Mashiach now. We are in Mashiach. 
it means we're in the throes of 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 you know laying the groundwork for whatever Mashiach means. It doesn't mean Mashiach as the individual. So that means Mashiach as a concept. Um, now, now these three ideas. Remember the idea of God, the idea of Torah, and the idea of Mashiach are exactly the same three ideas as Maimonides. These are the three crucial ideas in Jewish philosophy. The idea of God, the idea of the Torah, the idea of reward and punishment. Those three elements are the three elements that are the basis of all Jewish faith. Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. If you take a look at the 13 principles of faith of Maimonides, the first five are about God, the next four are about Torah, okay. and the next four are about reward and punishment. Because, all, right, if you want to believe what the Jewish people, like the Jewish messages to the world are the, are, are under these three categories. Now, now, my mind says, you know, that I believe in God and gives five things because you have to know what it means to believe in God. That has to be clarified. So you have to know that God is not a body; can have a body. There's only one God. Those are two separate ideas, mm-hmm. right? But, uh, but it's under one. Uh, it's the one uh, description, right? Uh, it's one concept, but there is uh, you have to define a concept. If you, you, you have to qu- qualify a concept, right? Now, now, what I'll tell you is also until and what happens if what we don't know? What do we know? What would happen? Do we know anything? What we do know is. Well, I want to say one more point to the previous thing. I'll go back to this, okay? Now, uh, the three prayers on Shabbat. There's the Friday night prayer, Ma'ariv, the morning prayer, Shachrit, and the afternoon prayer of Mincha. These three prayers, these are uh, all directed at these three ideas. Number one, the idea of God. Number two, the idea of Torah. Number three, the idea of Mashiach, of reward and punishment, the ultimate reward and punishment. And the prayers, if you take a look at the prayers... Of Shabbat prayers, right? It's not, there's no uniformity in Shabbat prayers. It's totally different. Um, Friday night, it's about the idea of God, right? As symbolized by Shabbat, Shabbat is, you know, God rested, right? God. The morning prayers, Moses at Sinai, we have a Torah, right? The, the afternoon prayers are, okay, at the end, at the end of days, there's going to be a the world believing in God, right? The idea of, of God coming out to the whole world, the idea of the world completing its mission in its current in its current uh, uh, phase, right? That's symbolized by that prayer. So these three ideas, uh, these three ideas are, are like like someone brought that uh, that Talmud. Dave brought that Talmud of the, uh, you know, it's it's the three ideas of, of Shabbat. It's the three uh, uh, two thousand, two thousand, two thousand of of the world, and uh, and it's the three core concepts in, in Judaism. Uh, now back to what you brought up. Uh, as to so what's going to happen afterwards? Is that is that the question? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, as a, with every other issue in Jewish philosophy, where do we go to? Well, Talmud, but uh, and 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 in in, in modern, well, I guess in the last millennium, we go with Maimonides, right? Because he collects all the Talmud, right? He's the organizer, he's the codifier, and he gives the code. And he well, what does he say? He says that. We don't really know what's going to happen after. All we know is what we know now, right? It's it's the kind of thing where you have a mission, and okay, when you get to there, you'll be told what your next mission is. That being said, we do have some hints, 
I'll share with you the hints. Uh, and uh, it's found in um, it's found in, in, in a few places, but uh, the easiest um, encapsulation of this idea is brought down once again to the Shabbat prayers and the Shabbat morning prayers. We talk about these three existences. One is called Olam Hazeh, which means this world. Olam Haba, which means next world. Yimot HaMashiach, there's a Mashiach. And La'ati Lavo, and in the future. Uh, which, like I said, it's a hint. It's hinted towards four phases of humanity, of the world. What is Olam Hazeh? Right? Everyone can choose whether or not they believe in God. And the Jewish people, we say, we believe in God. And we attest to that fact. Olam Abba, there's nothing else. Right? There's no room for denial of that. It means it's Olam Abba, as if you take a look at that, uh, the morning prayers I can show it to you. Ein Zulatcha, there's nothing besides for God. Right? Mashiach and Latid Levar also seems to be different phases of existence of the world. Right now we're at Olam we have our mission, we have our Torah, we have a description of what's, uh, of what's required of us. And, uh, you know, that's what we have to focus on right now. But like I said, it's, if you want to... If you actually scour the Talmud, you'll find statements like Lati Lavo, which remember Lati Lavo is one of the four times, right? There's Olam Hazeh, this world, Olam Abba, next world, and Lati Lavo in the future. You have a statement in the Talmud in Sukkah, Tractate Sukkah 52a, it says Lati Lavo in the future, right? Which seems to say, well, it's not, well, when's the future? That, that time, or those words reference a specific time called Lati Lavo. And it says, in the future, the Almighty is going to slaughter the evil inclination. In front of the tzaddik, in front of the righteous people, in front of the wicked people. And everyone's going to be crying. And tzaddik will be crying, how do we overcome such a mountain? And the Rishayim, the wicked people, are crying, how do we trip over such a strand of hair? Right? A statement of Talmud that needs to be clarified and deciphered. But once again, that's a reference to a certain point in time, sometime in the future, that's called Latid Lavo. You have other statements in Talmud. Say, when is Mashiach coming? When will it be Yimot Mashiach? Well, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's uh, you know, we went a little over time, and we didn't actually. Uh, well, we did. Yeah, we have your time. Yeah. yeah. Covered, yeah. Um, but I'll tell you, if you really want to hear more about Mashiach, I would um, refer you to a class that I gave solely on that topic, uh, and I, dr- I addressed every aspect: the philosophical, the practical. Sources, every element that you want to know, everything you want to know about the Mashiach, everything you could possibly imagine to ask about Mashiach, is uh, is to be found in that class. It's to be found in uh, my website, rabbiwalby.com. Go to the search bar and type, type in Mashiach, or go to audio classes and click and look for faith, and it should be there somewhere, or maybe in the sidebar. But uh, you can download it and put it in your iPod while you. John or whatever. Uh, who is a Mashiach? Who is Mashiach? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what are the requirements? <laughs> I've been asking. From Everybody. the house of David? Well, that yes, we already know this. One of the six requirements. Okay. Six requirements. Mm-hmm. What, what, what does he need to do? How do we know Mashiach's coming? Okay. Uh, right? There's a military component to Mashiach. Is there? Very good. Okay. Seems to be a military component. She really knows her stuff. Mm-hmm. No, I don't. Well, six, there's six requirements <laughs> yeah. for Mashiach. What are the requirements? He's going to tell us, because I can't remember six, but 
No. Okay, let's see if I can remember all the requirements. Well, first of all, who they have to be? They have to be. Um, you know, you can look at Jesus for one. You know, they they tied Jesus to the line of David when there's really who knows that there's no proof. Well, okay, there's a major problem with that. Yeah. Which, and this is like, okay, fine. You're telling us he doesn't have a dad, but somehow he comes from the line of David. David, yeah. How does that work out? Mm-hmm. Drops the mic, walks off the stage. <laughs> How does that work out? <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> that, that's a simple problem. It's not, you know. Anyhow, so one of them has to be from the line of David. He has to be uh, uh, tremendous Torah scholar. I think Dave, you're by this class, no? Yeah, I went to. He has to be a prophet. He has to. He has to. He has to be a prophet. He has to reinstitute. He has to re- bring the Jews back to Israel and back to Torah. He has to rebuild the temple. He has to reinstitute the sacrifices in the temple. I think that might... Uh, yeah, is that barbaric? I know people... No, it isn't. No, it isn't. I know. Huh? I'm sorry? I was just... Uh, to bring the sacrifices back. Is that the same literal meaning as what it was... You know, 5,000 years ago as opposed to now? Why 5,000? 1,900 years ago, we were bringing sacrifices every single solitary day. Well, think of a sacrifice. Think of a sacrifice as you're taking an animal, you're killing it, and you're eating it. Something that we do every single day. It's not such a big deal, right? No big deal, right? You take the animal, slaughter it, depending on which kind of... No, we're not. We're bringing it to Jerusalem. And they close the door so you don't even have to be there. You have to seal the blood and the guts and the gore. All you do is you get a steak. And you grill it. And you eat it. It's not so barbaric. No, but what does it do? I thought prayer was our remedy for this. And I'm not sure. Going back to the sacrifices, what really does it do? So, um... Um... Yeah, how does that... How does sacrifice work? Yeah. yeah. So there's a there's a there's a few um, our faith, our um, commitment. Well. What do you mean to revert back? To revert. What do you mean? You know, okay, let, let, let's start from the top, okay? Let's start from the top. We're really on, we're in different books. No. <laughs> Not on different pages. We're let's start from the top. Okay, let, 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 let's go through Exodus, okay? Well, forget about Leviticus for a second. Leviticus is a lot of sacrifice, right? Exodus, okay? Now, in Exodus, it says, that the Jews were in Egypt, and the Almighty tells Moses to tell the Jews to go collect a, everyone grab a, a sheep and de- designate it, right? And then on the night of Passover, right, you slaughter it, right? right? And don't break any bones. You take a little bit of the blood and you wipe it on with, the, you know. And then it says, and every year, the Jews should eat, as a commemoration of that, on Pesach, Jews should come to Israel, and do the korban pesach, do the, sacri- the, the, the pesach sacrifice. Now, um, and the Talmud tells us is that this is one of the most important mitzvot in the Torah. Actually, the, 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 sorry, the Torah tells us that if someone does not do it, 
This is one of the only, there's only two commandments in the Torah that are positive commandments uh, that have the same stringency uh, uh, as, uh, as typically ne- negative commandments. Then there's always, in the Torah there's always positive and negative, right? Do this, don't do that. Uh, typically, the ones that there are punishments for are typically the negative ones. If you don't do it, if you do it, you get punished, right? Uh, there's very few times where there's punishments for not doing the positive commandment. Mm-hmm. And this is one of them. Is that what you're going to Correct. Uh, uh, doing the Pesach uh, sacrifice, which is bringing the animal, mm-hmm. slaughtering it, eating it, uh, as a group with all the laws, really all the ancillary laws, is one of the positive commandments in the Torah that carry with it a very, very heavy punishment for those who do not do it. Do it. And the other mitzvah, that, the other positive mitzvah that does carry that same weight is the mitzvah of doing a brit milah circumcision to a young Jewish boy. Right? If you're Jewish, you have to have a circumcision. Right? If you don't, to a certain degree, you're removing yourself from the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And therefore you have, you get punished by, get, by getting the punishment called kares, which means sort of excommunication or disenfranchisement. Very hard word to uh, but it means you're removing yourself from. It means this is the mark of a Jewish person. You say I don't want. I don't want a part of it. Right? Pesach is the time where the Jewish faith uh, began. The uh, Jewish practice began. We're commemorating the, uh, the Exodus from Egypt, uh, the most important event in history of mankind. And uh, we have a mitzvah to commemorate. You say you don't want to be a part of that. To a certain degree, you're repudiating Judaism. Hence, it carries with it a circumcision. Child. Well, child very good. Very good. The Talmud in Kedushin <laughs> 29a says, okay, the parents have responsibility. The parents say, we're not doing it. Well, the Jewish community has responsibility. Why? Because we're all interconnected. The child grows up. He's 13 years old, still uncircumcised, right? God forbid. What does he need to do? Circumcise himself. What? It's not that painful. It really isn't. It isn't. Maybe for an adult. Are talking from experience here or what? I, I, <laughs> I have. Eight years old. <laughs> no. Eight months old. Eight weeks. Were you going to talk old. about back to the uh, sacrifice thing for those of us? Oh, yes. Back to the sacrifice. Yes. I mean, so how many of us in the uh, secular world who are Jews have actually slaughtered the lamb? You don't have to do it yourself. I don't plan to ever slaughter the lamb. And you know what? When my kids got a circumcision, I did turned you, around because I, I can't Rabbi, stand blood. Did you get the blood from the lamb and give it a schmear on the door? No, you don't need to do that anymore. That was one time. That was only during the during oh, the actual. Oh, oh, no, oh, you all you need to do, well, you use like this. Okay, ready? Instructions. Okay. Let's assume that that let's assume that the temple gets rebuilt. Let's assume the temple gets rebuilt over the next sixty days. Sixty to ninety days. We decide we're kicking the Arabs out, we're building a temple, we're reinstituting sacrifices. Okay? Comes along Pesach, the four and a half months. Pesach, it's the middle of April, uh, April 15th, I think. Tax day. Right? <laughs> we, whatever we need to do, we get on a plane, we fly to Israel, we buy a sheep. Right? You have about 100 people share one sheep because everyone needs to eat only an, an egg's volume, or not an egg's, an olive's volume of, of the sheep. Okay, you bring that's it to the, it's all you need to eat. Okay. You bring it, uh, a single bite, exactly. You bring it to the temple. Right? You give it over to the Kohen. They have it branded that we know that it's yours. Right? Okay, they take it, they slaughter it. Obviously, they take off the wall and they, right? and they give you a piece of meat. 
don't know how it looks, maybe it's several pieces of meat, right? You have a grill, you put a fire under the grill, you you uh, roast it. This is outside. Yeah, we take a tent, I don't know, outside, I don't know where they're going to do it. Probably, I, I assume it's going to is be. This done, is this done today? No, it's not done today, we don't have a temple. But you said that we are commanded to. Right, we are commanded so long as we have a temple. Oh, we don't have a temple. Oh, I missed that. Uh, yeah. yeah, sorry. I'm uh, sorry. Well, this is going on somewhere or other. All this happens in Pesach. No. And we in America don't hear about it. I said, wait a minute. Okay. I said that one of the requirements of the, of the Messiah, of the Mashiach, is that he's going to reinstitute the sacrifice. We don't have any sacrifices. No one you know today or even the past thousand years has ever brought even one sacrifice from a temple. You have a temple, you rebuild the temple, you reinstitute sacrifices. Okay. It's but not. Rabbi, it's, Rabbi, why is it that they would say and make that a requirement? I'm just who's curious. They? Why <laughs> who's is they? It, whoever wrote the six things that Mashiach has, the attributes of Mashiach, and one of them is, and then when the temple is rebuilt, sacrifices will come back into being. Why is that? Why would you think? I mean, maybe you don't know. I don't know. What is the idea behind sacrifice? Oh. What is the idea? I, I okay, so there's a few questions here. You ask what's the idea behind sacrifice, yes. and you also ask what's the idea behind sacrifice reinstitution right. being a characteristic of Mashiach. Which question do you want to know? Both? Yeah, tackle whatever. I mean, I'm, I, I'm confused well, about the sacrifice. We're going to be checking this out. And, <laughs> and if Mitzvot. Everyone has to fly. This is an important mitzvah. We got to all get on a plane. And we make the pilgrimage, and we each, we're going to buy the animal, and we're going to sit together, and we're going to have a great time. We're going to sing uh, the. Well, I guess we won't but do answer those two questions. Right? Yes. Uh, why is that one of the characteristics of the Mashiach? Uh, my answer to you is I don't know. But that's why it is. It is. Because that's what the Ramamanides writes. What is his source? You have to have a source for everything. What is his source? Um, so it might be that it's a piece of Talmud. It might be that it's something that he uh, achieved from uh, logical deduction. Um, it might be, I don't know where his source is. That's a good question. It's funny. We, the reason why I know that is because Mermanis says that. And Mermanis is the one-stop shop for all Jewish... definitive detail that we could draw upon why... Well, not why. We already know why he was stated with it would be we have to do it. But we as uh, Americanized, cultured individuals have to say, why would this be such a thing you bring back to the temple mm-hmm. after Or you can ask the better question, why do you have a temple at all? Why go back to Israel? Well, we can, Is I, that a valid question? Who do you want to You're talking something culture versus what we almost consider as barbaric. Why is it barbaric? Well, you, because you're talking, you're not talking you eat, feeding, you you're eat? talking sacrifice. You're specifically using sacrifice. Not feeding, not enjoyment, not as sitting around the bonfire and, you know, singing songs. Okay, but, I, I, but I, 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 I don't agree with the statement of, of sacrifice being barbaric. And you know what? I'll prove to you. Okay. You get nervous. I'll prove to you. I'll present a very convincing argument that what we view as barbaric is just a result of our upbringing. And I'll tell you why. Ready? Okay. 
what is the one mitzvah that the Jews get persecuted the most or got banned more than any other mitzvah? The Greeks banned it, the, Ro- the Romans banned it, the Soviets banned it, the circumcision. There's no mitzvah um, that has experienced the um, quite the um, uh, challenge to Jews to observe over the centuries. And right, the Romans and the Greeks said, this is barbaric. You are mutilating the human body. That's what they're saying. Right? And we said, no, 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 it's not mutilation. In fact, it's self, it's perfection of the, of the human body. It's perfection, right? We're revealing the crown. Um, it's, yes. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> careful, careful. We have great artists who what would you say, celebrated the uh, that Yeah, and, and this is something that over the years the Jewish people had to contend more than any other mitzvah. Doing the and remember, the Romans they were the real barbarians. They slaughtered people, like had animals come rip people to shreds. Right? Yeah. Wholesale slaughter, human, human slaughter, human sacrifice existed everywhere. Right? Uh, but, but circumcision, that's barbaric. That's immoral. Right? And we said, listen, we have a Torah. We've got a Torah from God. God himself. Right? We have evidence that this is correct. This is true. The Torah tells us that you need to, you need to, you need to do it. And even though our neighbors and all our, all the Romans, the entire Roman Empire, think that it's barbaric, we're going to do it anyhow because it's right. And uh, we might not be able to convince our neighbors, but like you see, you know, they come around. The Gentiles come around. Right? The ninety percent of, of of the world gets circumcised now, right? So, is it barbaric? No, it's not barbaric. People thought it was barbaric. They're wrong. Now, sacrifice. I think today. Today, people think that sacrifice is barbaric because, for whatever reason, either I think it's probably due to the association of what sacrifice means. Oh, sacrifice, it's some crazy temple. It's definitely tied to that specific notation. It's, it's a sacrifice. And that conjures all kinds of negative thoughts. I think that, uh, let, let's, let's, let's try to reframe it. Let, let's rebrand sacrifice. Ready? And make it more palatable for us. But the Torah didn't. Well, the Torah did. The Torah did. It just no. I'm I'm trying to. Re- I'm no. I'm not semantics. I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you meaning. I'm gonna explain to you why we have sacrifice, and I'll take it from being barbaric to being meaningful. Ah, skeptical. Okay, let, let, let's let's stop here. I just we're going way overboard. But uh, but yes. Elevated yes. right up there. When, when my husband and I, about 10 years ago, we went to Africa. And um, one of the places we visited was a native village. And we had this like 80 year old man who's got you know, 10 or 15 wives. The women do all the work and they just collect, make children and collect cattle. But one of the things that, that they do, we, we to enjoy, but when they have family come in or they've got a good harvest or something, then they have this big celebration and they sacrifice 
a goat or I mean they don't it's not sacrifice but really what they're doing is the same thing there's very ritual killing of the animal it's then butchered and shared with the whole community mm-hmm. okay so, so, so that I don't look at that as being a sacrifice <laughs> Well, they're starting out instead of going to your freezer and baking out steaks. <laughs> you know, they go to the backyard a, and pick. But they, they, it's butchered, it, it's killed in a certain way, and the blood is shared, and a lot of rituals, which we know. But you know something? But I, I think it's probably the same. This is a very sacred. But remember, holy, we have a, This is in the Torah. Yeah, because if in Leviticus, we have guilt offerings. Eight different kinds of offerings. And this is the Torah. We got this from the Almighty Himself. Now, you know, it, it, uh, it, 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 you know, I, I think that uh, there's some things that in American culture is, you know, right. barbaric. But because it's that this is our culture, it's hard for us to uh, reject it. Um, you know, I don't I see everybody after 9 o'clock. Anyhow, it was 